Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament passage of John, the Gospel record of John in chapter number 15. The Gospel record of John in chapter number 15. We're continuing with this series of the Upper Room Discourse, and we're at the downhill slide. Just a couple messages left, just a good appropriate time for this Christmas season putting an emphasis on our Lord Jesus Christ. In the context, Jesus Christ knows that his hour has now come. In just a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested, put on a false trial. He's going to be sentenced to death and then put on the death of the cross. And he is pulling his disciples aside. He has separated them out for the purpose of trying to prepare them for the life that is about to change. And this morning we saw that he has pulled the disciples, he stood up from the upper room and said, boys, let's go. And they begin to travel from Jerusalem down the valley to the Mount of Olives, heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. And chapter 15 and 16, Jesus is instructing the disciples on the way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning we explain that Jesus is trying to prepare them and telling them the principle of abiding in Christ, that he is the vine and they are the branches. Without him, they could do nothing and that they have to be abiding in Christ and we explained what does it mean to abide in Christ and took some time which again is going to be a very important lesson for the disciples because in just a matter of hours Jesus Christ is going to be removed from them and the secret of them continuing with the Lord's work is for them to abide in Christ that they're not going to have the strength they're not going to have the ability of themselves they must have to abide in Christ with that same thought of them abiding in Christ, Jesus continues with the same vein explaining the consequences. One of the things Jesus Christ has always been good at is explaining how hard things are going to be. He never puts a salesman version trying to tell people about how great everything is. The Christian life is not a bed full of roses. God never promised us a life of ease. But instead, he did say that if all those that will be godly, they shall suffer persecution. Well, Jesus explains this to the disciples now as he is about to be arrested, trying to prepare them that if they're going to abide in Christ, that there's going to be some consequences for those actions. Pick it up with me, if you don't mind, in the Gospel record of John, chapter number 15. The Gospel record of John, chapter 15. And let's pick it up in verse number 18. The Gospel record of John 15, starting at verse 18, the Bible says this. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. 
But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And if I had not come and spoken unto them, they'd have not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man had did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that is found, this idea that's found over and over and over. But if you don't mind, notice with me, <laughs> excuse me, in verse number 23, the whole phrase, it says, He that hateth me hateth my father also. He that hateth me hateth my father also. And with this, we want to hit this idea here of hating God. Hating God. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. We thank you for the great victories we had this morning and just the great crowd and the kids choir doing well, the visitors that we had and being able to proclaim the word of God. We're asking as we continue with this that you know exactly who's supposed to be here. You know who needs this message and how to prepare us for the things to come. We know that you never promised us an easy life, but instead you want us to be prepared that we have to abide in you, that we have to be plugged into you in order to survive the things that are going to be faced. Lord, let this principle be understood, and I'm asking that you would do something special within our service. We love you. Fill me with your spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hating God. Can you imagine people who hate God? They're all around us. There are people that hate God. There are people who are offended at the name of Jesus. There are people all around who want to erase the idea of God. They want to get rid of the Bible. They want to shut down churches. We understand that we live in a world that hates God. Now, while we're here, let's go ahead and define our terms. When we deal with the world in this sense, we're dealing with the idea of the world's system. The world system. The world system is against God. What do I mean by the world system? I mean by the culture, by the, uh, the um, presentation the world has. For example, Hollywood is against God, without a doubt. The music industry is, hates God, without a doubt. The liberal media, they hate God without a doubt. The, pol uh, the politics that we have in our country, they hate God without a doubt. And so this is what we mean by the world system. The system of the world is going completely different than God himself. They are two different directions. You cannot be part of both. You cannot try to please the world and try to please God because they're going in two different directions. You have to choose one or the other. Now, as Jesus is pulling the disciples aside, he's giving them the principle of abiding in Christ. And as they abide in Christ, as they have the word of God abiding in them, they will be different. They will be following after Christ. And that, remember, we explained the principle that it's God that does the purging. He's going to purge some things out of our life, which is going to be about that world system, the world's influence. They're going to purge those things off. And now as we abide in Christ... The world is going to hate. 
because it hates God. If you don't mind, let's notice this as Jesus teaches this principle here. The first of all I want to show you is that the world hates his followers. The world hates his followers. Why does the world hate Christians? Why do they hate people who love the Lord? Well, the Bible explains some reasons in this text here. First of all, the world hates his followers because they are different. The world hates the, his followers because they are different. Notice with me in verse number 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. What is the reason why the world hates Christians? Because they are different. You understand that if you're following after Christ, you're not following after the world. Again, you cannot serve two masters. You must choose to follow after God or follow after the world. Because they're going in two different directions, you cannot follow both. You understand there's a principle here that if you were to have God and you would have the church and then you would have the world, what happens is that sometimes people are separated from the world but not separated unto the Lord. So as the world gets further and further away from God, the people, the church, the individuals, they also sway away from God. But if the people are separated unto the Lord and from the world, that as the world gets further and further away, in addition, they become further and further away from Christians in the way that they are. That the more that you follow after God the more that you are going to be different. And by the way, the greatest evidence that the Bible works, the greatest evidence that what we say is true about the gospel and abiding in Christ is the evidence of a changed life. That we are different. Now, being different is not the goal. God is the goal. But as we follow Christ, we will be different. We'll be different in how we speak. We'll be different in our desires. We'll be different in the things that we like. We'll be different in the way that we dress. There's differences that we have from the world. And the world hates it. The world wants you to be just like them. The world wants you to conform to the world. They want you to be just like them. But if you're following after Christ, you will be different. Now, that's the thing that Christians have to decide. Because Christians don't like to be different. We want to fit in. We want the world to accept us, but you cannot. Either you're going to be accepted of God as you follow after Him, or you're accepted by the world. And if you choose to follow after Christ, the world will hate you. Because it hates God. That's just a truth. That's a recognizing. So if you choose to follow after Christ. Also know you are going to suffer persecution. Just to know the world. Meaning the system. Is going to be against you. But you have to recognize that coming in. That the world it hates his followers. Because they are different. Notice if you don't mind. As we continue with this idea here. Uh, <laughs> In verse number 20, we see something else here. Not only does the world hate his followers because they're different, but the world hates his followers because they are disciples. They hate 
the world hates us because we're disciples. Notice in verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. So here, Jesus tells them right away that because you're following after Christ, the world will not understand. The world will hate you. You know, there is a principle that the closer you get with Christ, the more that people don't understand you, including other Christians. As you follow after Christ, it becomes lonelier and lonelier because Christians, even true born-again people, they will follow up to Christ up to a point. And then they'll have something they won't cross. And they'll stay right there. But if you continue to follow after Christ because you're advancing past them because you are doing something they are not willing to do themselves then they have to criticize you you know my biggest critics are Christians pastors absolutely without a doubt it, you just have to say I'm going to follow after Christ I'm going to choose him you see you have to choose who are you trying to please in fact let's be a little bit more specific what is the goal. If the goal is God, then you'll be satisfied by obtaining him, by knowing him, by having him. But if your goal is something else, then you can easily be stopped from following after God. You see, the goal has to be God. You have to determine that if you're going to abide with Christ. And if you're going to abide with Christ, you're going to be following after him and the world will be hostile. Other Christians will be hostile. You're going to have to say, God is the goal. I'm following after him. And understand that they're going to hate you because you are his disciples. You are his followers. Your goal is God. I want to be like Christ. So we understand the world is going to hate its followers. It's going to hate the followers because they are different. It's going to hate the followers because they are disciples. You know something else that the Bible says, a reason why the world is going to hate us if we follow after Christ, if we abide in Christ, is the world's going to hate us because they don't know him. The world is going to hate us because they don't know him. Notice with me in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Now, verse 22, Jesus says, Hey, if I didn't come and preach sin, they could have said, Nope, I'm not a sinner. I'm good. But because I preached, guess what? They're convicted of their sin. Now they realize they are sinners and they don't like it because they don't want to change. You understand what comes with abiding in Christ? People are easily convicted. Verse 23, he that hateth me hateth my father also. We understand that Christ's presence and the preaching of Christ exposes false doctrines. It exposes sin. And it makes it so people can't hide. That's why they hate people who follow after Christ because it convicts them. A lady who dresses modestly, it affects the world. It bothers them because it convicts them. You are a living message. A person who decides to have a walk with God and have the presence on God. It bothers people. And you have to understand, it is going to bother people. Because they like their sin. And they don't want to see it as sin. And they have a problem with it when their sin's exposed. They don't want to think that their sin is awful. And so they will hate you. You see, the old adage is, is when something goes wrong, blame the preacher. 
If you could get rid of the messenger, you could ignore the message. The same thing's true about your life. Everyone's life preaches a message. And if you've chosen to follow after Christ and to look for him, people will hate you because they don't want their sin exposed. They don't want to think of what they do as sin. You see, we live in a world that loves sin. We live in a world that advertises their sin, brags about their sin, and they don't want anybody to stop them and to tell them that their life is sin. They don't want the presence of someone in there. You know, as a Christian that has the presence of God on them, they don't have to say anything and people are automatically convicted because the Holy Spirit who lives within them that's manifest convicts them already. And the world will hate them. You say, this is not good news. I'm sorry. Jesus is giving a warning to the disciples, letting them know that this isn't going to be an easy time. You've got a rough road ahead. But your choice is to abide with Christ. But if you do, this is what you have to look forward to, is the world's not going to understand. And they're going to hate you. Not because of you, but because of God. You see, you need to take yourself out of it. You can't take it personally when people hate you. You have to understand they're convicted because of God. They're offended because of God, not you. You're just the messenger. You're just there as a living message, as a testimony. Now, we understand that the world is going to hate its disciples, but Jesus also explains a little bit more in detail here that the world hates his son. The world hates his son. Notice in verse 23 again, he that hateth me hateth my father also. You understand there are some people that say, oh, we don't have any problem with God, but you don't, we don't want to hear anything about Jesus. You understand if you don't love the Son, you also hate God. Verse number 24. If I had not done among them the works which no none other man did, they had not sinned. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. Here Jesus is explaining here that they hate him and they hate his father. And that Jesus did all these miracles so they have a hard time denying that this is the son of God. And they hate him even more because he is God. They hate him. Verse number 25. But this cometh to pass that the world might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. What Jesus is doing is quoting in verse number 23. He's quoting Psalm 35 verse 19 and Psalm 69 verse 4. He's quoting these passages in both of these. Giving a prophecy that they are going to hate him without cause. The Jewish people that are now marching up the hill. Judas Iscariot has, has, is down the hill preparing them. He's gathering up the army. They're grabbing their pitchforks. They're grabbing their torches. He's planning on leading them up to the Mount of Olives. They're preparing now. Why do they hate Christ? Jesus has done nothing to them but do good. And they've hated him without a cause. These are the same people, who, by the way, who have the Bible. These are the same people who teach the Bible. These are the same people who are very religious and they hate Christ. And they're preparing to go. This is a prophecy that was made and Jesus is letting the disciples know, hey, these guys, you don't even know they're coming yet, but they hate me without a cause. And just a few hours, they're going to arrest him and they're going to crucify him. These are the same people who claim to love the scriptures and teach the scriptures and yet they hate Christ. 
Why? Why? Because they hate God. Just a horrible thing that they hate God. They refuse to have this man rule over them, they say. Now, with this, you still have to make a choice. Is it still worth it to you to abide in Christ? Let me tell you the most wonderful thing it is to abide in Christ. To have the joy that he offered you, that your joy may be full. He said just a couple verses back, to abide in Christ. But Jesus wants you to let you know right ahead there's a price to pay. That the world is going to hate you. He doesn't want you to make a decision without all the facts. But let me tell you, it's still worth it all. It is still worth it all. Someone said, well, what happened to the disciples? Well, I'm glad you asked. You understand that every single one of the disciples, except for John, died as a martyr. Or Judas Iscariot, who killed himself. You have Andrew, who was one of the first four disciples. He was crucified in uh, Achaia, which is in the Greece part of the country. And he was crucified on a cross shaped like the letter X. He died. Now again, this is tradition. This is the best sources that we have. But we do believe that all the disciples but one all died. Bartholomew, he died, <coughs> suffered crucifixion in what we call um, Armenia. He died and crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, he was killed in Jerusalem by Herod Agrippa. That's found in Acts chapter 12. You found uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, often called James the Less. He was uh, supposedly killed in the temple and then thrown down and beaten to death. John, of course, the son of Zebedee, even though he died at probably about 100 to 120 years of age, it still wasn't without persecution. Tradition says he was boiled in oil, but yet he still lived. And he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which he received the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation at the time. Uh, he suffered even though he wasn't quite martyred. You have Judas Iscariot who killed himself. You have Matthew who <coughs> people believe he suffered a martyr's death in Ethiopia or Macedonia. You have Peter, which according to tradition, he uh, died a martyr's death in Rome. And he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord and Savior. So he asked them to put the cross upside down. And so he was crucified upside down. You had Philip, who according to tradition, he met his death in Heriopolis in Syria. You have Simon, who was surnamed Zealots. It was uh, presumed he died in North Africa after preaching. You had Thaddeus, who's called Judas. Uh, he died. He preached in Syria, uh, Arabia, Mesopotamia, and Persia, and then later died in, uh, in Mesopotamia. Then you had Taud uh, Thomas, Doubting Thomas, who had a ministry to India, and according to tradition, he was killed by an arrow as he was praying on his knees. You understand, each of the 12 disciples, they suffered. Why? Because they chose to abide in Christ. You say, well, that's horrible. It's awful. It is horrible and awful. But abiding in Christ is still worth it. But you have to recognize that if you choose to follow after Christ and choose to follow him completely, the world will hate you. Maybe you've never heard the story of Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey is a powerful story in England. If you don't mind, may I read you a piece about Lady Jane Grey? 
in Lexshire, a few miles south of uh, Lecture in Bradgate Park. A winding path leads to the beautiful park passing the historical trees. Those trees once witnessed the playfulness of two little girls. One was Jane Grey, who lived with her parents at the mansion situated at the end of the path. The other was Elizabeth in her later years, Queen Elizabeth I of England. Elizabeth, on occasion, would visit the Grey family to play with Jane. The Grey family was of royal stock, an honor to be cherished. But for Jane, a curse, ending her life at age 16. Jane was an amazingly gifted and highly educated young woman. By the age 11, she was corresponding with leaders of the Reformation in continental Europe. Those letters, by the way, still exist in Switzerland. The tragic death of Jane Grey resulted from a power play for the throne of England. Parliament had authorized King Henry VIII to nominate his successor to the throne. He had selected his two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, to succeed him if his son Edward had left no heirs. Should these three rule and die without heirs, a remote possibility, Henry directed that the throne would be then passed to the family of his younger sister, another Mary. The younger sister had died leaving two daughters, Jane Grey being the younger. Hence, Jane Grey could legally become queen if Edward, Henry's son, Mary, and Elizabeth all died without heirs. During the early part of 1553, King Edward, then only 15 years old, was dying. Upon his death, the next in line of succession was Mary, a passionate Catholic. The Duke of Northern Umberland, a devout Protestant, initiated a play to bypass Mary, the legal heir to the throne, and in her place to install Jane as queen. Part of uh, Northumberland's plan included Jane marrying his son. The marriage took place with the complicity of her parents, but against her own will. As the plot unfolded, an attempt to capture Mary failed. Being forewarned as she fled up to Northfolk, gaining time to appeal for help. Told of her succession, Lady Jane Grey protested. She had little desire to occupy the throne at the Tower of London. Her parents insisted. The circle of leaders surrounding her shamed her should she not rise to save England by becoming queen. For nine days, Jane and her husband occupied the state apartment at the tower. Meanwhile, the scheme to replace Mary was parting at the seams. A force led by Northumberland to capture Mary at Northfolk had failed. The country at large knew very little of Jane Grey. Mary they knew as the legal successor to the throne. Jane was looked on as an usurper. With an opposing forces in disarray, Mary entered London in early August with popular support. Betrayed, Jane now found herself deserted by those who forced her to become queen. It was now apparent that their chief motive had been their own political position. Her own father, seeing the unfolding events, did an about-face and proclaimed Mary as queen. He returned to the tower, found his daughter sitting, bewildered on the throne and the council chamber. Come down from there, my child. That is no place for you. He then explained to her that she was no longer queen. She looked at him with all innocence of a 16-year-old girl and said, Can I go home now? 
the young girl was escorted from the chamber to another. Although comfortable quarters, now the prisoner of Mary. Queen Mary realized that Jane had been used. She was fond of Jane and planned to release her. Being a close relative, Mary had known Jane all of her life. She secretly sent a message to Jane saying that a pardon would be granted at an appropriate time. However, the political stage demanded another course. Mary desired to reestablish Catholicism in England. Being surrounded by papal, <coughs> uh, papal advisors facing strong Protestant revolt, she now found Jane Grey a serious liability. She could now not be set free without her becoming a figurehead for the opposition. There was a way out for Mary if she could persuade Jane to renounce the Protestant faith and become a Catholic then a release would be possible. This act would immediately disqualify Jane in the eyes of the reformers as a leader. Jane, however, would not deny her faith. Everyone around her, Protestant and Catholic, were guilty of religious politics. Jane had watched them use religious symbols to, to gain personal ends. Jane, however, was caught up and used in their web of deceit, was too pure to deny truth. Queen Mary's next step was to involve Jane in a public debate in the tower. Perhaps the, the papal advisors could persuade her that she's wrong. Fox's Book of Martyrs records this event. Lady Jane Grain was no mere uneducated country girl. She defended the Protestant faith with a clarity so profound that her opponents were found speechless. The debate ended with the young woman standing head and shoulders above the Roman debaters. Queen Mary now saw Jane as a major threat to her throne. Jane Grey's innocence, her friendship with Mary in past days, now faded into nothing. Political correctness would now rule. There was only one avenue left to Mary, and that was to remove Jane Grey permanently from the stage by death. On February 12, 1554, Lady Jane Grey went to the block of the Tower of London proclaiming the message of Christ. The night before she died, she sent to her sister Catherine a copy of the Greek Testament urging her to read it. She said, it will teach you to live and it will learn you to die. It shall win you more than you should have gained by the possession of your woeful father's hands. From her window, Jane saw her young husband being led away to execution. From that same window later, she saw his headless body being brought back at a cart. She exclaimed, O oh, Gulford, the pain that you have tasted and I should soon taste is nothing to the feast that you and I shall partake this day in paradise. Then Jane herself was led out, a small sandy-haired girl dressed in a gown and a velvet cover over her head. Her last words were this, Good people, I am come here to die. I wash my hands in innocence before God. Bear witness that I die a true Christian woman and that I look to be saved by none other means, only by the mercy of God and the merits of the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. I thank God for His goodness that He hath thus given me a time of repent. While I'm alive, assist me. With your prayers. She then quoted the 51st Psalm before handing her gloves and her handkerchief to her maid. The brutal executioner was shaken. 
He was not prepared for this. He was used to having victims cursing and resisting. But this was a beautiful young Christian woman. Gentle and innocent and only 16 years old. She could have been his daughter. Forgive me, he begged her. Jane replied, you are forgiven. Do your work quickly. She then tied a handkerchief over her eyes. Putting her hands out, she could not feel the block and cried, Where is it? What should I do? An onlooker helped her to find the block on which she laid her head saying, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In Lancashire, there still stands a church where Jane Grey attended as a girl. Down the path leading from the church lies the ruins of the Grey family home where Jane was born in 1537. In the grounds of the Tower of London lies the block on which she placed her head after a pronounced, a profound testimony for Jesus Christ. Lady Jane Grey is mentioned in the Guinness Book of World's Records as the first sovereign queen of England. Lady Jane Grey, if not the greatest, must surely take her place as one of the purest martyrs who ever lived and died for Jesus Christ. You understand the choice we have is to abide in Christ. If you choose to abide in Christ, the world will hate you. But your decision, is it worth it to know God? Is it worth it to have Him? Is God the goal of your life? Or is something else your goal? If you don't mind, we need to decide to follow after Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.